When I first began to learn Russian at school in London in 1968, I remember grown-up friends telling me of a book that had just come out that I would enjoy. It was by a writer called Leslie Blanche and was called Journey into the Mind's Eye. I knew it was about Russia in some shape or form, but the lyrical title meant little to me. I never read it and forgot all about it, until two summers ago, when I did read it and was captivated. All my youth I desired and was groping nostalgically for a land and a people very far from my London roots. It was as if I felt myself to be moving forward into the past, approaching my own moment in time, which was remote from the present. To me, it has always seemed that each individual has such a moment. It is this moment which most perfectly expresses them, in which they live most fully. Through the traveller and his tales, I had glimpsed that moment, which for me must be set in Russia, though in what conditions I cannot tell. Leslie Blanche wrote about the man always known only as the Traveller, who first entered her life at the age of three, when he came to visit her parents at their house in Chiswick. Throughout her childhood, the Traveller would turn up out of the blue, never expected, but always anticipated. With his wonderful stories of faraway places, tales of Russian folk legends and heroes, of the Decembrists and Herzen, Lermontov and Pushkin, of Yakut counting games and Mongol horsemen, he whetted her appetite for this vast and fascinating place. I longed to swap stories of Russia with her and regretted all the time since I had first heard her name. And then, one July day last summer, I opened the Saturday newspaper and there, large as life, was the most glamorous portrait of a woman, large eyes rimmed in black coal pencil, a magnificent turbaned headdress. It was Leslie Blanche, aged 101, but alive. The next thing I knew, I was on a plane to the south of France to meet her. Her house was set above the Bay of Garavan, a stone's throw from the French-Italian border just down the coastal road. It had Eastern-style porticos and was adorned with Islamic tiles, fragments of Turkish carpets framed in alcoves, books and photographs everywhere. Dwarfed by the large armchair in which she sat was a slight figure in a red robe. I was introduced to Leslie Blanche. Her face, powdered like a sugar confection, her pale blue eyes watching and waiting for me. We had a friend, a Russian, who was unlike anybody in England, naturally. Very fascinating, and I was madly in love with him. I began by asking her about the traveller. I wanted to know who this man was, who'd enchanted her so that she was still captive even now, living in the very place where she'd last been happiest with him, when she was just 17. And this man was very cultivated, and he really educated me a lot. He seemed to me the most interesting person that ever came to the house. He was completely bald, the head was shaved bald, which most people thought very ugly. I thought it very fascinating. He was Tartar, I think. 
in origin. Each time the traveller appeared in Leslie Blanche's nursery, he would bring her some treasure and regale her with his tales. And they would play what she called the runaway game, imagining themselves together in a luxurious carriage on the Trans-Siberian Express, or covered in furs traversing the frozen wastes of Russia in a sleigh. When she was 17, the traveller asked her parents' permission for her to visit him in Paris at Easter. She was allowed, but only with a chaperone. The traveller introduced Leslie to his friends amongst the Russian emigres there. She attended rehearsals of Diaghilev's newest creation and went to a recital Rachmaninoff gave for his friends. Seeing the way the men spoke to him and the manner in which the women looked at him, I now became aware of him as a stranger, as a man. It was most disturbing. That year, 1921, Orthodox Easter was 18 days later than the Catholic one, and the traveller managed to persuade the devout mademoiselle who was Leslie's chaperone to stay behind when he took her to midnight mass at the Russian church on the Rue Daru. Marvellous beyond everything. And it remains like that. Whenever I'm in Paris at Easter, I go to Easter. Some emigres, a few very smart, a few very rich, Grand Duchess family, some very, very poor people who'd struggled in, and some nuns. I can't remember anybody's name now because I'm a hundred and something. They stumbled out into the early dawn and went to a cafe to drink champagne and listen to a Russian gypsy troupe. Leslie was intoxicated by it all. The traveller hailed a taxi to the Gare de Lyon and they boarded the first train out of Paris. He drew the blinds of their carriage and pretended that it was not a stopping train for Dijon, but the Trans-Siberian Express and they were headed for Vladivostok. That night had, I think, decided both of us, he to seduce me and I to be seduced by him. Neither of us had the slightest qualm, nor were we ever found out. The traveller conducted the whole affair with what was, I suspect, practised care. Making love all day and all night, and sometimes going to a bistro to eat concentrating on the bed. I dare say he'd been my mother's lover, I don't know for certain, but he became mine. That summer of 1921, the traveller arranged a family holiday to Corsica. His two sons, by two different mothers, were roughly Leslie's age. Oh, I had a love affair with each of them, in turn, as the years went by. Fascinating. Not at all European. The traveller wrote to Leslie's parents, asking if she could join them. His aunt gave an air of respectability to the whole venture. We annoyed all the guests because we told them we were a circus troupe and that uh, we'd got our Balkan strictors upstairs. They nearly had a fit. We said, 
They're very well behaved. Would you like us to bring them down? At the holiday's end, they visited Monton. I thought this was the most beautiful place. And so it was till they buggered it up. One afternoon, towards the end of the holiday, the traveller led her up a steep hill, way above the small town, to the Russian cemetery. Here lies until the day breaks. I would spell out the Cyrillic inscriptions laboriously, at which the traveller would become impatient. Hurry up! I don't believe you've made any progress since I first taught you our alphabet. You were seven. You had measles at the time, don't you remember? He pulled me close. What a lot of odd things I've taught you. Now he was pushing me down across a stone slab. Above my head, the gold-starred cupola shimmered in the heat haze. You can't, not here. I was scandalized. Why not? Do you find it uncomfortable? or immoral, or both. I see I haven't taught you to be free of all those idiotic conventions yet. You don't suppose the dead care, unless they envy us. That summer was the last time she ever saw the man she hoped to marry. After the holiday was over, he disappeared, as he always did, without warning. But this time he never returned. A week before her 21st birthday, in May 1925, a packet arrived. Inside was a prayer rug from Samarkand and a precious icon Leslie recognised from the traveller's flat in Paris. The gifts were accompanied by a notebook and a letter. She knew the handwriting at once. I don't know if this will reach you in time for your 21st birthday. 21. Three times seven, magic of magics. What I sent is to remind you of that Russia we shared. You will find other prayer rugs and icons on your way. You love them and they will always come to you. I too love you, but I cannot come to you anymore. Don't ask me to explain. This notebook will speak especially to you. It contains some things that were to be part of a book I was always meaning to write. They were made at a time when each journey would have been made for you, a journey into your heart's desire. You never learn to accept fate. I don't think you ever will. Perhaps it might be better if the journey remained as a journey into your mind's eye. It's time for the traveller and his tales to go out of your life and for you to begin your own journeys. The Turkish people say farewell beautifully. Gulay, Gulay, they say. Go with a smile. That early experience of love and passion never abandoned her and shaped all her subsequent life. I asked her whether she thinks she was unusual for her generation of young women. Yes, I do. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think so. I looked the same and had the same sort of chat and dinner parties with men who bored me. Even uh, quite often when they slept with me, they bored me. 
European men I can't do with. I prefer them all. I, I, I have liked Russian lovers very much. Russian men I have found very agreeable because they would talk about so many things. So, and they're very poetic. And they're very undemanding as compared to a European who's spoiled. Every European man is spoiled, but not by me. Leslie made her first trip to Russia, the country of all her childhood dreams, in 1931. And although the shadow of the traveller was all around her there, she had no news of him. In the war, we had dinner parties and went and danced. And he was at one of those with a lot of other free French. During the war, in London, Leslie Blanche met the free French fighter and writer, Romain Gary. And as soon as I saw him, I knew he wasn't French. He looked like a Caucasian, rather dark. He's Russian, really, by origin. He's a Russian Jew. They married so that she could follow him to a posting in the French diplomatic corps in the Bulgarian capital of Sofia. I loved it. Small, shabby place with beautiful music in the church. Half the population were Muslim, Turkish. The other half were Orthodox, both of which suited me. I love, I love Muslim life. Leslie Blanche had worked as a journalist until she married Gary. She was features editor of Vogue during the war. But now she was free to pursue her own passions. While Gary spent all his free time working on his writing, Leslie would take a train to the Balkan Mountains or the Thracian Plain. I have always loved to travel to places, preferably where other people don't go. She published her first book, The Wilder Shores of Love, at the age of 50, about four women who had fallen in love with the East and thrown up everything to follow their dreams. Well, I would naturally want to go to Samarkand for the beauty of it and Bukhara and so many places. In 1950s New York, Leslie Blanche began researching the book she regards as her proudest achievement, a biography of the 19th century Chechen warlord and religious leader, Imam Shamil. It was the meeting of her two great passions, Russia and Islam. The Sabres of Paradise was published in 1960, a time of optimism and progress in Khrushchev's Soviet Union. Yuri Gagarin had been the first man in space, and anyone reading about conquest and vengeance in the Caucasus then would have been hard-pressed to find any parallels with the present. It was almost like a work of ancient history. But you only have to dip into any of its 500 pages to see why a prescient publisher decided to reissue Blanche's book in 2004. Just as she was completing her manuscript of The Sabres of Paradise, Leslie Blanche had an amazing breakthrough. I had a feeling I couldn't finish this book because I didn't have enough about Jimmy Ledin, his eldest son, who had been stolen by the Russians and brought up at the court. And my husband said, well, you're starting for you to find. And I said, well, I think there is. I must go now. I've got a feeling it's waiting for me. So I rushed to Constantinople. I threw my luggage in the usual hotel I stay in when I'm there. And I went to Besiktash, which was a port on the Bosphorus. Something told me to go to Besiktash. And I went down a lane, and there was an open door in a wall. 
But I looked over and there was a very ragged looking garden with a big house, which was in a bad state. And a woman came out in European clothes and she said, what do you want? I said, did Shamim ever live here? She was very patronizing. And she started telling me, well, he was a man, he lived in the mountains. He was a great priest. I said, yes, I know that. I've just written a book about him. Then I said, what I really want is a picture of Jimmy Ledin. I've got all the others. She gave me a look, and she said, you know about Jimmy Ledin? And I said, yes, I do. And she suddenly changed, and she said, well, I'll help you. Come in. And she stayed with me for the rest of my ten days in Turkey giving me all their family photographs and papers that the family had neglected and hadn't used. She was a great-granddaughter, very proud Caucasian. In New York, Blanche's husband, Romain Gary, met and fell in love with Jean Seberg, the Hollywood actress. Leslie Blanche was devastated but in the freedom she discovered as a divorced woman, she decided to make the journey of her mind's eye a reality. She went to Russia and boarded the Trans-Siberian Express. In her heartbroken state, she wanted once again to find the shadow of her first great love, the traveler. The Trans-Siberian had been their train, their journey. She had his notebook with her. In Moscow, an acquaintance had given her the address of a Serb living in Irkutsk, whom she could contact. He had known something of the traveller's fate. And I found him in Siberia, and he told me, yes, he, he became very ill in the end. And I think he was a spy and got in some trouble somewhere. In fact, I know in the end that he had been an agent and had certainly been in trouble at the end of his life after the Second World War. He was out in some place beyond the Balkans more further. Anyway, he finally... I don't know. Nobody knows. But his presence can be felt everywhere in the house on the hill in Montan, where Leslie Blanche still treasures the love he gave her for the country of his birth, Russia. And even today, the traveller's real identity is still a secret. He'd always be sitting in a room and suddenly say, well, you've got to go. And then he'd go, and you wouldn't hear of him again for a year. I made up my mind he should remain what he was, which was a very mysterious come-and-go figure. <laughs> 